1: Hey Ray. Yo There is a chance that this episode we're discussing may not have ever happened if there were an architecture firm called Mason, Wright and Waters. Do you explain, dear Marcus? Those three important key members of the band Pink Floyd all met when they were in architecture school. All of them wanted to be architects, but they also enjoyed music. Lo and behold, (laughs) we ended up with the brilliance that is Pink Floyd and not an architecture firm in London.
0: What are they saying, Ghostbusters? Don't cross the streams, right? (laughs) Well... (laughs) There were a lot of streams being crossed at the London Polytechnic, and there was all kinds of stuff happening, from music and science and art, all kinds of elements all working together, including architecture. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But if they didn't form a band and they became an architecture firm, think of the far-out fucking things they would have built, man.
1: Dude, do you think they would have designed buildings tripping on acid? That's the question, isn't it? When it
0: comes down to taking that architecture road, and we'll never know because they kept taking the acid and they went the other way down the road to music and became one of the legendary bands of their and all time. It's Pink Floyd from the gates to the Adam Hart mother. You get it? We're going to talk <laughs> about the early days through the Adam Hart mother album, and I inserted a comma, mother. But And this is early on, Marcus, coming out of the London Polytechnic days. They got into bands, and like a lot of people in those days forming bands, they went through a lot of names, like Sigma-6, and then they became the Megadeths with two Gs. Is that weird or
1: what? (laughs) And the death was spelled normally, not the way Megadeth spells it. I wonder if he was inspired by that early Pink Floyd name.
0: Dave definitely didn't get any inspiration from their next name, the Abdabs, and then the Screaming Abdabs. Dabs uh, they were called Leonard's Lodgers and the Spectrum 5 and then they became the T-Set and that's when they found out there was already another band named the T-Set because when they showed up to play, they were there to play too, both bands were on the same bill imagine <laughs> that, we were in the early days <laughs> who the fuck
1: booked this? looks like we're having a hell of a tea party this evening
0: Well, people come and people go and the younger Sid Barrett joins into this little musical confab and it's starting to take shape in whatever amoebic form that Pink Floyd would take musically. The band is starting to take shape. And as personnel changed, Sid Barrett became the de facto frontman and leader and that would lead to gigs and writing and studio time. The process had begun. These guys were exploring fully the art of making music somewhere in there guitarist bob close leaves and they move forward with the people that they have with sid taking over on guitar
1: This is around the time a lot of bands were getting breaks and a lot of bands that we have come to know and love over the years were starting to make noise in that early London scene. This band, like many of the other bands, inspired by the blues and the soul and the R&B, but they always had that psychedelic edge to their sound and they kind of added that trippy groove to it. They started playing clubs around town. There was a guy who opened up this acid club in London called the UFO Club. the, dream, a scene, a
2: the blue you once knew. Floating down, the sound resounds Around the icy waters underground
1: He saw a certain reaction from Pink Floyd fans when they were playing live at the other places. They didn't have a huge fan base or anything like that, but... Their fans were loyal and dancing and moving, so this guy opens up this club, a monthly club basically where everybody took and tripped balls and uh, danced to the music together, and Pink Floyd became the first resident there and really started developing their sound and growing.
0: They've been already playing places like the Marquee Club, right? Yes but this kind of became one of their places that they could go to. And they would also add to that list mothers where some legendary
1: recordings would be made live. And also their light show developed at the UFO Club. There was an architect named Mike Leonard who was designing laser light stuff and he would try it out at the clubs during their performances to go in sync with the music. And he's the guy who helped figure out how to sync the moving lights with the music.
0: Think about it, it was happening in multiple places, San Francisco, New York, London, different cities where this new vibe, where it was a visual presentation as well, was beginning to happen all over the place.
1: That early sound of theirs seemed to be more of like a psychedelic pop sound as they were still learning their instruments and learning each other. Instead of taking a massive left turn, It seems like they took a big, slow, hard curve. Their sound developed and ended where it is.
0: You mean it was progressive? (gasps) What a shocker!
1: It was extremely progressive for that time.
0: Remember, when they're starting out in 65 and 66, there was no such thing as progressive rock. Bands like the Moody Blues were also getting their start. But it starts to coalesce as the decade comes to an end and acid becomes more pervasive in the creative process. But at the beginning, they're in the Star maker machinery, just like everybody else, with Arnold Lane their first single.
2: On the wall.
1: Hung
0: singles were still the thing. It was the 60s, Marcus. Underground radio in the U.S. hadn't yet been born.
1: My son got to watch that video as I was preparing for this episode and he was like, what's going on in that video, Dad? Those (laughs) guys are weird.
0: It's hard to say, son. We're not on Three Taps of Acid.
1: (laughs) I was like, I don't know. And it was also wild that they had named songs after people. A lot of their songs had people's names in it.
0: Reference point, the u.s single which became a huge sensation and kind of established them see emily play
2: emily tries but misunderstands she's often inclined to borrow somebody's dreams till tomorrow
0: That album, Pipers at the Gates of Dawn, includes Astronomy Domine* and Interstellar Overdrive, two songs that are part of the all-time pantheon of amazing Pink Floyd songs.
1: And two songs that they played live regularly for years and years, and very important in their live sound as well as their growth and development.
0: You'll see that as we continue through the story, but we thought here on The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll it would be good to start from the beginning, kind of. It comes together pretty quickly because the intention is there by the guys. They want to be a band, and they want to make music, and the opportunities were plentiful. It's Pink Floyd from the Gates to Adam Hart, mother, on the Imbalance history of rock and roll brought to you by the good folks at Boldfoot Socks. Check them out at boldfoot.com, and by Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Haparo, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. Well, it was many years before 2014, Marcus, but May 12th, 1967 is a key date in the development and the evolution of live concert sound and Pink Floyd's
1: role in it. What happened on that wonderful date?
0: It's funny you should ask. (laughs) At the Queen Elizabeth Hall on London's South Bank, Pink Floyd performed that day, and it was the first show where they set up a quadraphonic PA which would become a regular part of their shows and tours throughout the Pink Floyd years into the Roger's solo show still to today. Quadraphonic sound has been part of what they do. Whenever they could,
1: they did. Their pioneering work on sound is marvelous and we all benefited greatly from these great minds. It's funny the way things worked back then. Here we're talking about a big
0: step forward in 67 of quadraphonic, but they were still slaving machines together to get the multi track effect. also not preserving things in the way that they would later do bands learn to archive things and save things see Emily play was recorded a few days after that quadraphonic sound PA thing at sound techniques and a lot of the details are lost in the EMI paperwork archive and some of the tapes they say the original four-track master tape was either wiped or misplaced wow it's a legendary
1: song right Mm mm-hmm I'm going to say it was accidentally wiped, most likely.
0: When they put it on the Relics compilation years later, they had to reprocess it in the brand new, then, duophonic stereo. They had to treat it that way before they had the kind of uh, techniques that they can do in digital now.
1: Wow. Technology has come a long way. Now, there's a story that Sid
0: Barrett wasn't happy with the way it all came out and really railed against putting it out at all. Now in the mix at that time there was a guy named Norman Smith he was an EMI guy and a producer and he speculated that Sid was actually afraid of commercial acceptance which if you're a record label kind of runs counter now then and for all time to what your point is you know yes you have to a certain degree accept you're going to be commercialized if you're going to get widespread acceptance of your music and your art now, I got some information that I never knew before, Marcus, and you and I learn stuff all the time doing this podcast. David Gilmore had come to the sessions
1: mm-hmm.
0: at Barrett's invitation, Sid and he were friendly and he could already see the changes in Sid and really said years later that uh, I'll go on record as saying that that was when he changed. Gilmore would be partnered with him in a way that I didn't realize. And we'll talk about that as we go through the albums. And the transition, while not necessarily smooth, had already begun not dissimilarly to Brian Jones, which you brought up before, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, Brian Jones was very self-destructive, and he would leave and check out in stages, and Sid was doing the same thing. And not only was there the issue with acid, there was also the issue with uh, mental illness. Compounding that with high doses of LSD probably exacerbated some of those conditions and probably you know fired all the uh chemicals in his brain he would check out he would be there and there were times when he would just be standing on stage sort of just looking at the crowd not even playing his instrument and that's part of what they did with uh dave gilmore's brought him in to play behind sid if sid wasn't there and they played like five gigs together David, I saw him talking about it, said it was really hard for him because he knew he was going to be replacing his friend from his childhood Mm -hmm. in this band. He knew that his good friend, who was a happy, wonderful, warm child, was going through this drastic mental change. The fact that he was struggling so hard and he would check out, David really had a hard time with this, but he knew that this band was something special and that they were going to go on. For the sixth gig that David Gilmour was playing with Sid Barrett in Pink Floyd, they were on their way to get Sid, and they were like, do you think we should get him? And they were like, no, let's not, and they left him, and they played without him on that sixth gig that David Gilmour was supposed to play with Sid, and they just left him, and from there, they just kind of left him behind, and eventually Sid figured it all out, but because he was so in and out, it took him a while to figure it out. Marcus, they
0: could have called the album a saucer full of LSD because that's kind of what everything was based around and what was going on. And that's the album where Gilmore starts to contribute more and Sid starts to step back. Not unlike when Brian Jones stepped back in the stones on Beggar's Banquet and McTaylor began to do more. So that's kind of where they start to take that turn that you're talking about, that big curve. And by then, though, think about what was going on by then in the late 60s, the progressive bands that were already turning. And we could do that whole, put it all together on a timeline at some point, buddy, and just talk about it. Mm -hmm. But I think we're looking at a situation here where Pink Floyd is helping to really torque it and put it into another gear. And of course, they arrive early. (laughs) They get there before most everybody, including some of the bands who'd be the big psychedelic heavy hitters. And songs like we talked about before, like Astronomy and Interstellar and Set the Controls for the Heart of the Sun, are all part of the profile they're building as a band. Pink Floyd. Taking flight, if you will. Sadly, with Sid Barrett left behind.
1: It almost seems like that was supposed to happen with sid barrett you know it's 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 almost like the fate stepped in and i i don't know if that's the right way to describe it but some crazy but it's you know it's some crazy fate shit
0: anything that would be a normal experience and take it all kinds of different places And and it wasn't good for Barrett. Nobody has ever said, oh, he was fine with all that. He wasn't. And it took him places that he didn't come back from. And it leads to his return briefly in the story in the 70s when they're making uh, Wish You Were Here. But, you know, they're getting around to it, Marcus. The decline for him was steep. And the last song, his final track as a member of Pink Floyd, the Jug Band Blues, is chaotic and imbalanced. It's him at his departure point from Pink Floyd.
1: During those sessions, he recorded a couple other songs that he thought were going to be on the album. And then at the end of the day, they didn't fit because they were kind of all over the place. And they've been since released on one of the many packages that Pink Floyd has offered. This Jug Band Blues may have also been sort of like his swan song or his goodbye with the band in a way, too. And
0: what would follow would be one of the greatest stories. It would take years for us to all learn what had happened before the departure of Sid Barrett. And even now I'm learning details of Gilmore's introduction to the mix as Sid is being pushed out and you add stuff here about how they approached him at that sixth gig is a perfect example.
1: Oh, we could definitely do a full episode on Sid Barrett. He was a very intelligent human being, and the other guys in the band often referred to him as a genius who even sometimes maybe was so smart he had a hard time relating to people in the rest of the world, and you have geniuses like that.
0: There have been some in rock and roll who kind of fit that, but Sid, probably the most famous or infamous amongst them. What do you say we take a pause for the cause, have a brewski, change up the socks, come back (laughs) with more, ironically, which is the name of the next project from Pink Floyd here.
1: (laughs) Sounds good. It's Floyd from the Gates to the
0: Adam Hart mother on The Imbalance History. We'll be right back.
1: Is that an Oxford comma you keep using, Ray?
2: Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds.
0: You know, man, I've been meaning to ask you, you did the big cancer ride down the shore. How were the boldfoot socks on your feet while you were riding down there and in the rain, too?
1: Tell you what, those boldfoot socks were tough in the inclement weather. And between the boot covers and the socks, my feet didn't get stinky, wet, musty, or anything nasty like that. I did not get gnarly feet at all.
0: Gnarly feet, bad. Uh, Old foot socks, feet protected, good.
1: Seriously, they felt great. They wicked the sweat out of me because we were riding, and we were riding at a good pace, and...
0: Only the socks are going to wick the sweat out of you, buddy. That's all I want to say. And, you know, that's one of the things they're really good at. And that helps you to get, like, a drier ride, like, between the sock and your feet when it's getting wicked away from it.
1: Oh, we sweat big time when we ride. When your feet are moving at that pace for as long as they are, you need protection for your feet. Your feet are important. You can't do what you want to do without your feet, so you need your feet protected.
0: So beat your feet to boldfoot.com and check out the wide variety and styles of socks they offer Right there on their website, and don't forget to put in balance fifteen in the code box to save fifteen percent on your first purchase at boldfoot.com. Look, they're your feet. Be bold. Thirst. It's a need, Marcus. You need to satisfy a real thirst. And what a better way than with a nice fresh craft beer at a crooked eye in the heart of Hatboro
1: and you can also visit jamie's house of music in delco to get that very fresh and tasty crooked eye beer
0: their music schedules picked up at jamie's house of music i follow them on facebook so you see a lot more shows going on there and anytime they're open for shows you can get your crooked eye there get a growler and take some home or you can head to halfborough and their schedules picked up a lot too and My Vinyl Night is moving to its permanent home the second Tuesday of the month. Come and see us. Bring your vinyl if you want or i'll bring mine
1: you can't forget that friday nights from 4 to 11 there's live music over at crooked eye and open mic night the first third and fifth mondays of the month
0: first third fifth i can't do math when i'm drinking at crooked eye well the brews are cold and they're always fresh always the favorites and something new on the board there at the brewery location in hapro serving the cure for what ails you since 2014 we thank them for their support
1: of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll podcast.
0: It's Pink Floyd on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Thanks to our sponsors, Ray and Marcus, hanging out and talking about those early days of Pink Floyd. And we really thought it'd be best to start from the early days through Adam Hartmother. Mother. Uh, oh, wait a minute! I put the uh, I put the comment and I didn't need to, <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh,
0: because that's kind of where they take a creative turn. If you're looking for the leaders amongst the progressive bands of the time, they're definitely becoming one of them as David Gilmore becomes more and more important to the band's sound. And I wanted to ask you a question that I thought of earlier and I didn't want to move forward before addressing it. Was Floyd's early sound hampered by lack of technology to maximize expression, or was it Sid's less than Gilmore-like feels, that made the sound of Pink Floyd prior to this next phase musically.
1: I'm going to have to say that David Gilmour's feels made a big difference in the sound changing, without a doubt. I don't know if Sid had lack of feel compared to David Gilmour, but his feels seemed to be checking out. A lot more and he seemed to be losing his feels because of his mental illness come I've misplaced them. <laughs> exactly. Hasn't it- mom, have you seen them? Have you seen my feels? I can't I've find them anywhere. You're but- always losing
0: the feels. What's wrong with you? Shit?
1: <laughs> a Monty Python skit right here. I think David Gilmore really connected with Roger Waters and Nick and Rick what you know I think the four of them really gelled as a band the impact of Sid going the way he went made them tighter as a band and it almost in some ways made them even more determined to succeed because their management at that time thought that the band would fail without Sid. And they were like, oh, yeah? I think well, I they guess really, that I kind of felt hey, stupid. Yeah, I'm sure they did. But I think about it. I think it really pulled them together tighter as a unit, and it, it added that determination that really pushed them forward to take that psychedelic sound to the next level. Plus, having some psychedelics in your system doesn't hurt us all when you're doing that.
0: For palpable evidence of that, you fast forward a little bit to the video live at Pompeii, and oh, man, you could tell. Um, But before they get there, they go to their third album, which is also uh, their first soundtrack album. Soundtracks would continue to be part of what they do. But here, more is really a Pink Floyd album, and it gives them a chance to explore. And they, they use hypnosis for the cover and everything. So obviously, the people making the movie got it. It's their first without Sid, which I guess could have been a little bit scary for everybody. And they begin to take steps which we were talking about that take them beyond the identity taken from uh, Pink Anderson, Floyd Council, and move into that psychedelic groove.
1: Yeah, but the More album's got a couple of rockers on it, and it's got a couple of soft songs. It's
0: all- it's all there. It's all there. All the elements are there.
1: True, but this album seemed to be a different step for them because it wasn't done like a typical soundtrack they kind of did the music as if the music was part of the movie instead of being a background type of music wow the the director was a somebody named barbe schroeder and they were a big fan of the early pink floyd sound like those first two records
0: art man <laughs> it attracts art you know yep but, you know, you got songs like Cirrus Minor, the first song that has a lot of feel, and they actually have a song on side two of the album called Main Theme. that are you know, things that are dramatic themes, Spanish piece, things like that that are that are a little bit of a give to try to make it work for uh, this guy who wants to make the music part of his movie, right? But you mentioned rockers. Biza Bar is one that grabbed us both. And it's like, wow, that's very different for everything they've done so far.
1: And that and the Nile song are the two big rockers yeah. on that record. And I really like the Nile song a lot.
0: Trying to figure it all out, they bring Brian Humphreys in, and they start involving engineers versus having a producer on site.
1: It makes sense. A bunch of architects, hey, we can work with engineers. (laughs) Yeah. Makes sense. (laughs) And more
0: is the first album that they released on Harvest Records, which would become a famous label through the 60s and the 70s. Their next record, though, very, very ambitious to do a live album for a relatively new band. But there they are putting together Umaguma.
1: By the way, Umaguma is a slang term for having sex. Tell me something I don't know, mate. It's the Cambridge slang. That's the pretty widely held version.
0: But the guy who worked for them, his nickname was Emo. Mm-hmm. Not like Emo Phillips. His name was Emo Moore. He said, "I'm going back to the house to get some omagoma," and he said he made the term up himself, but it is kind of known in the Cambridge area. Really, we did our research, folks. I made a note about omagoma to say, basically, in a manner of speaking, the band was just fucking around on this album, their first double album, and this is where mothers becomes part of the equation. disc of the album is live recordings made at mother's club uh, november 7th 1969. now this is like one of those clubs that all the hip kids are going to it's like that ufo place we were talking about right yeah so by recording these shows marcus they're putting together on one disc of Omagumo what i would consider to be the perfect live album from those early days, even managing to work careful with that Axe Eugene onto disc one, which had been a B-side, which became a fan favorite uh, while they were playing live. And let's make it clear, folks, they're putting their fourth album out. And at that point, they would had some airplay, but they were becoming a huge band, not unlike Black Sabbath, who was about to follow, right, on their own terms, musically and artfully, and doing their own thing and building a following with some
1: Airplay. Some. Very similar to how Radiohead did it in the United States a few decades later.
0: That's throw out all the rules and do it all your own way and only have one hit song your whole life and be huge. This is in the same
1: ballpark, though. Good point. But yeah, that album is wild. I was uh, watching a few interviews with the band members online. They had each said that they... Looking back, we're not proud of this album. Each member got a side of the album to control. and Brian, set I got up. that same
0: vibe from the things I was reading, too.
1: And it's like, they were like, you know, hey, it was fun at the time. We tried, and it was a massive failure. While well, critics may have liked it in the prog rock, you know, vein and, and fans, in the trippy fans vein, like... and the fans loved it. I mean, hell, the name of the album, Zuma Gooma. I love it already. Ah! They sold a million fucking
0: copies, man. It's unbelievable. There's a couple other things about this album, though, that you need to make notes of. The first is the picture within the picture within the picture, the Drosta effect. (laughs) and That's uh, part of the design that Hypnosis did. Also, look at them in all their different little pictures within the pictures, Marcus, because that's the last time you're going to see the faces of Pink Floyd on any of their albums,
1: ever. And I think that female in in the album cover is Gigi, the model.
0: Oh, no. Research department.
1: I have a factoid about Umaguma. There is a dragonfly species named after this album. Get out of here. I swear, the genus is Uma, a damselfly, and Umaguma is the name of the species that they found or named after the album.
0: You learn shit every day if you listen to this podcast, I'll tell you that. All right, wait a minute. Ding, ding, ding. Hold on, wait a minute, since we're in the science department, Marcus. Going to talk about the, the award for the funniest song title on Umagoma, which is one of the funniest album titles of all time. Several species of small furry animals gathered together in a cave and grooving with a
1: pectin. <laughs> <laughs> well, that might be the longest song title ever, too. Oh, man. And you know what's really weird to
0: think is a lot of this really out there shit was going on. Right there in the EMI Avon Road Studios, where so many stayed and stuffy things had been done. Well, not much has happened here since the Beatles played on the roof, you know. But here they are in 69 with all this other shit's going on. They're in the middle of it, making Omegoma and all this wild stuff going on in the same building Uh, where the Beatles are working and all these other EMI artists are working, including the stuffy orchestra types.
1: And you know what I find pretty amazing about an album like this is they recorded it over a five- or six-day period, the live part, and then... A few months later, like five months later, after recording all of this, they released it and they were using eight track tape and they were cutting and pasting and marking and taping and it wasn't done digital. So the fact that they were able to put this together on tape the way they did, the produ- whoever did the cutting and the editing is a genius, an absolute genius
0: something was happening in the recording science departments at emi and all over the world all these companies were developing technology there was a solid state board eight track tape in one of the studios where they were working to do adam Hart mother and emi basically forbade them from cutting a slice of tape one not one cut of tape please because they were able to do it all on eight tracks and adam Hart mother is quite a playground that's their next album which is recorded in uh, March and July of 70 and released that fall. And it's the last step in our discussion of Pink Floyd this episode, but it's really the beginning of them fully recognizing who they are and what they are as a band as they turn the corner into the 1970s and
1: explode. This album is wild. I listened to Adam Hart Mother a couple of times in the past week, And it is like six parts of a song. Father's Shout, Breast Milky, Mother 4, Funky Dung, Mind Your Throats Please, and Remergence.
0: That first side, which is a whole song, also involves Ron Gieson because they needed some help with some of the orchestrations that they wanted to do to make all these parts work together. It's very involved. If you listen closely to Adam Hartmother the song, you'll hear a lot of the song and feel textures that will appear all throughout the 70s in all the albums that you love. I say it's the Seed album. It's funny because it's got mother in the episode title, right? It's Adam Hart, mother.
1: <laughs> Oxford comma.
0: Yes, sir. And uh, that's what I think comes through. It really is the seed for what's coming. And then on side two, you've got some pretty cool songs fat old son Gilmore would play occasionally when he would do live shows said it was one of his favorite songs from those early days they each got a turn summer 68 is really sweet from Richard Wright and if Roger Waters continued to play if I had a lot of his shows for years and years and the whole thing wraps up with Alan's psychedelic breakfast that closes the album right straight to the end groove it's a dripping faucet so that if you put it on and fell asleep at the end, if you woke up two hours later, the dripping faucet would still be playing on the inside (laughs) groove. I thought that was so fucking genius, man. Roger Waters.
1: So quirky in their ways, and they really are a thinking person's band without a doubt. They have all these layers and textures, and the songs just move all over the place. And without
0: any discernible radio
1: or marketing
0: love, it hits number fifty-five in the U.S. and number one in the U.K. Wow. Number one, yeah.
1: Without any marketing and radio, that is and, huge. And we
0: already discussed how the guys weren't that crazy about how it came out. Mm-hmm. But I got to mark one very important aspect of this album that will influence everything into the 70s. It is the debut of a young engineer named Alan Parsons. Originally misspelled with two L's on the original sleeve. Alan Parsons. Remember that name. (laughs) Like you could forget,
1: right? No kidding. (laughs) What he will do in the 70s with Pink Floyd is beyond legend. As Pink Floyd moves forward beyond Adam Hart Mother, you're going to see David Gilmour and Roger Waters wrangling more control of the songwriting process.
0: As we go into the 70s albums and discuss them more, we can talk about that album by album, song by song, house to house, combat if you must.
1: Oh, there will definitely be some combat in that those stories, so we'll have to wear our boots and our gear. Might want
0: to also wear protective gear for when we dig into Live at Pompeii, recorded at the ruins of Pompeii in 1971, released a year or two later with some of the sessions of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, added an interesting film and an interesting performance. Definitely enhanced, if you're following me on that. Followed the next step and where we will continue this story the next time we convene at the altar of pink floyd is metal an album that sets the tone for their move to massive mainstream acceptance marcus
1: this is the phase that really is where i became familiar with pink floyd
0: and if you didn't get it at the beginning when it was coming out which you probably didn't it's where a lot of people came on board musically in their exploration of early Pink Floyd, they go, yeah, metal, I get it. That's it, that's the sound. And what happens after Obscured by Clouds is an incredible thing that we'll not see again in the music universe, I don't think, unless, you know, all this lasts longer than we all do in thousands of years. What happens when Dark Side of the Moon hits is pretty (laughs) incredible for these guys and for the music-loving world that existed in the 70s.
1: Yeah, Dark Side of the Moon is still going to be a powerhouse 100 years from now if we're still civilized and uh, (laughs) alive as a society. What did Zager
0: and Evans say (laughs) in the year 2525 if Earth is still alive? So with that cheery thought, Pink Floyd always inspires some dark imagery, don't they, Marcus?
1: Oh, without a doubt. They're a very dark (laughs) band. But boy, are they good. Boy, do they make you think.
0: So let's take it. And put it aside for now and look forward to getting into the next phase. Hey, guess what? There's a full moon in the next phase of Pink Floyd's history here on The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I want to thank our sponsors, as always, Boldfoot Socks at boldfoot.com. And the gang at Crooked Eye Brewery, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. Always fun going on there. So check it out on Facebook. And uh, for the rest of us, you can check us out on Facebook and socials. We're on Twitter and on Instagram and all that. Or you could just hit our website, imbalancedhistory.com. You can also email us, imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. And we're hearing from more and more of you. And we thank you for uh, emailing us and giving us your input and your feedback and all that good stuff.
1: Can't wait to hear. And if there's anything we left out or anything we missed, please let us know.
0: Oh. I assure you the Floyd fans will definitely let
1: us know. <laughs> well, There's no way they can't. Then thank you in advance for teaching us something as well. <laughs>
0: Until the next time that we teach each other shit here on this Imbalanced podcast,
1: I'm Ray Kub. I'm Marcus Goldman.
0: And we are the Imbalanced History
1: of Acid Rock and Roll. Far out, man.